While they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find there tied a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, why are you doing, what are you doing untying that colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed him were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. It's right to praise you, almighty God, for the acts of love with, uh, by which you have redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. On this day, he entered the holy city of Jerusalem, in triumph and was proclaimed king of kings by those who spread their garments and branches of palm along the way. Let these branches be uh, for us signs of his victory and grant that we may bear them in his name, may ever hail him as our king and follow him in the way that leads to eternal life, who reigns, lives and reigns in glory with you and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen? Amen. Have a seat. So for the past few months, we've been on this trek through the book of Mark, the shortest of what is called the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the story of Jesus' life in similar fashion. We've talked about how Mark, being the shortest, was probably the first written. Matthew and Luke most likely used Mark, uh, used what Mark had written, and, and they built on it. And over the past three months, we've seen Jesus do some rather incredible things, but we've only actually just last week reached the end of chapter 3. So what are we doing this morning? Fast forwarding to chapter 11. As you might have figured out from all the present greenery, today is Palm Sunday, the day that traditionally the church has used to celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Since we're obviously going to talk about the, res- uh, the crucifixion on Good Friday, and of course we're going to talk about the resurrection on Easter, I thought it might be a good idea to talk about the Palm Sunday text on Palm Sunday. Call me crazy. We'll back it up. Uh, we're going to pick back up at the top of chapter 4 uh, the week after Easter. So throughout the Bible, throughout the story of the Bible, the city of Jerusalem was vested with monumental significance, right? This was the city. This was God's city. This was the home of the divine. This was the the holy city. And there's been this mounting anticipation, the building of excitement, similar to, to the harsh physical journey 
that, that, that Jesus and his followers were all on. Sometimes we don't think about actually the, the physical uh, journey, the, the physical struggle that it would have been to, to travel around as much as Jesus did. The disciples are waiting with bated breath to see what's going to happen. When Jesus, the one whom they believe is the Messiah, the one whom is the Son of Man, the one with authority, marches into God's holy city, which just so happens to be under the thumb of the Roman Empire. What were they expecting? What what would have you been expecting? If you had heard Jesus teach in the synagogue with such authority and seen him tell unclean spirits to leave tortured individuals and you heard him heal a person stricken with leprosy, what, have you would, what would have you expected from him as he traveled into this city, into God's city? Would you be praying that God would somehow cast out the Roman oppression from Jerusalem in the same fashion that Jesus cast out demons? Would you desire that Jesus would come riding in Jeru- into Jerusalem like, like Alexander the Great, riding a great war horse with a legion of warriors behind him to reconquer the kingdom of God? Well, the good news is that today's story is actually about how Jesus took back the throne. The oppressive rule uh, that evil forces currently have on God's people is about to suffer its greatest defeat. While the war will continue for centuries, the decisive battle is about to be won and the victorious king is about to be crowned. The thing is, the history of Christianity that would follow the events surrounding Jesus' time in Jerusalem would be filled with humanity wrestling with, what, with just what it means for Jesus to be this victorious king. The darkest moments in church history have revolved heavily around the lie, the false belief that Jesus can only be king when his followers are in power. That was the story of the Crusades as legions, crusades, as legions of Christian warriors fought to take back the holy city. And it's the story of us at times in the 21st century, just as some might fight for the Ten Commandments to be posted in public building and buildings and prayer to be encouraged in public schools. Jesus remains king regardless. So we can have questions about policy of such matters, but the real question for us this morning, is Jesus king? Is he king for you? Who, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that he's king? Are you living like that? Are you living like you are operating your life and your work and your family under his rule and reign? Is that what you'd say? What would it look like for us to live into the freedom of Jesus' rule and reign right now? Not one day when we get to heaven. Right now you're called to live under Jesus' rule and reign. For many, Christianity uh, has been cheapened to merely a story of how we can, you know, get our hands on fire insurance. We cheapen the gospel when we turn it merely into a personal story of how God saves my sins, saves me from my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. The events surrounding Holy Week, the events that we're celebrating this week, they announce a gospel much better than that, much more wide, much more of much more depth than that. The gospel 
is the royal announcement that the crucified and risen Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again according to Scripture, has been enthroned. He's been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. When that gospel is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, out of the love that He has, not because of their works, but because of who He is, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. That's what Holy Week is all about. The triumphal entry that we'll look at today is the beginning of the celebration of Jesus' permanent enthronement. The truth is that Jesus is king now. And now the question remains, are you living under his rule? Are you living like he's king? So Mark tells us, beginning in chapter 11, that Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem by way of Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. So these are all milestones of a painful journey that took the group through the Judean desert and actually through the lowest point on the face of the earth. It's almost always blisteringly hot with very little rain. The trek to Jerusalem was a long, dry journey up to the Mount of Olives where you can finally view the city. I've never been there myself, but the group, Jesus and his his disciples, they stopped to rest and they're sitting down. You can just kind of feel that they're they're beat. They've gotten to the top of this mountain and they're just out of breath and, and Jesus He calls a couple of his disciples over to where he's sitting. He says, look, guys, go into that village ahead of you. And immediately as you enter it, you're going to find tied there a colt that's never been ridden. Untie it and and bring it. Now, if anybody asks you why are you doing this, just say, the Lord needs it and he'll send it back immediately. So Mark and Luke, like Mark, like Luke, uh, record this animal as being a colt which could refer to just, you know, a young horse or any kind of transportation animal. Uh, Matthew actually offers a bit more specificity, and he's the one that actually describes it as a donkey. The disciples do what they're told, but it's interesting how much detail is given to the retrieval of the animal. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible where there's, there's parts where it's like, man... Mark, I wish you would have talked just a little bit more about what was happening right here. I would have liked a little bit more detail about, you know, these certain issues. And, you know, Paul, I would have liked you to talk a little bit more about this issue. Um, but for some reason, when it talks about going to get a retrieval of the donkey, not only Jesus does Jesus tell them to do it, but then they recount, like, how they're going to do it. And then when they, they, they tell the story of how they go about doing it, and then, like, everything just kind of gets, you know, Say happens exactly the way they said it, but it seems like very, um, it seems like a very kind of trivial thing to have this much detail and such a short little amount of uh, of text. But there was a prophecy. See, there was a prophecy that the disciples would have known well. Zechariah spoke of the coming ruler of God's people. He said, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion." Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem, lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. 
His dominion shall not shall be from sea to sea and from the river of the ends of the earth. So the fact that Mark includes the detail about the cult having never been ridden before means that he was fit for sacred purposes. He was fit for royal purposes. Typically, horses and donkeys had to be broken in if they were going to be used for transportation purposes. But there was a principle in Jewish culture that declared that no one was allowed to ride the king's horse. No one was allowed to ride the king's beast of burden except for the king himself. Only a king was fit to do that. Only a king was fit to ride the royal horse. The disciples went away. They found a colt near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what, what, are you, what, what you doing untying that colt? They said to them what Jesus had said, and they allowed him to take it. Evidently, Jesus' word had some pretty good sway, I suppose. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So Jesus is now ready to enter the holy city. Now, a conquering king would have ridden in on a magnificent horse, a magnificent war horse, and Zechariah certainly spoke of the king returning in the city, returning to the city with triumphant victory. The thing is, Zechariah also mentioned that this triumphant, victorious king would be, he puts a peculiar word in here, humble. Now, is that a word that you typically think of when you think of leadership? I hope so. It's been said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Christian tradition picked this up very early. The Apostle Paul quotes what could be described as an early Christian poem or an early Christian hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not at your own interests, but to the interest of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Hey, I'm only asking you to be like Jesus here. So, you know, take it up with him. Because Jesus who though he was in the form of God, or some of your, your, your translations might say, though he was in very nature God, though the guy was God himself, incarnate, he took the form of a slave. He didn't regard equality with God. He didn't regard that kind of equality. He didn't regard that kind of power as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and then being found in human form, he humbled himself, the God of the universe, the God of, of dynamic, ongoing creation, the, the sovereign one. Think of all of the words that you can think of about God's sovereignty and the power and how he's in in all things and through all things. All of It was that God who humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Even death on a Roman cross. Therefore, therefore, in lieu of all that, because of all that, in, in spite of all that, because of all that, therefore God also highly exalted him 
and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It was his humility that was the thing that made him powerful. You want to know what it looks like when God is in charge? You want to know what it looks like when God is king? Look at the cross. Look at sacrificial love. Look at servitude. Look at, look at Jesus being a slave to love. So that's Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. You might think of reading that passage every day this week. Every day during this holy week, during your 15 minutes alone with God. Evidently, the words that the early church associated with Christ Jesus, the anointed Messiah, the one who would be highly exalted and crown kings, crown king would not be words like selfish ambition, conceit, exploitation, violence, war, domination, destruction, conquer. Instead, evidently, the early church, when we were to think of the cross, when we were to think of God's sovereignty, when we were to think of of God's power, we were to use words like peace, humility, love, sacrifice, obedience. This goes beyond servant leadership. This is what's been called cruciformity. The self-emptying, self-giving faith, love, power, and hope of Christ. You might, think, you might be thinking, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, you're traversing too far into Good Friday when here it is only Palm Sunday. But what do you think Jesus came into Jerusalem to do? For what do you think the king was returning He knew where this story was headed. He told his disciples about it several times before that moment. Jesus was indeed headed to Jerusalem to retake the throne. But for that to happen, it would mean obedience. It would mean obedience to the point of death. It would mean obedience even to death on the cross. Remember that this was during the Pax Romana. It's said that crucifixion wasn't just Rome's torture device, Crucifixion was a powerful device of political intimidation for anyone who would question the would-be peace of Rome. Caesar says, you want peace? Sure thing. Just live as though my sword is at your throat and will be just fine. Then we'll have peace. To suffer the crucifixion was to suffer a most humiliating and shameful death Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind as we journey through the next week, as we journey through, as we consider what happens next in this story. When Jesus finally enters Jerusalem, it says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut off in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, Hosanna means Lord save us now. It's a Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word that it kind of mixes praise of God with a prayer that God would offer deliverance to his people now. Not one day when I die. Now. They also sing Psalm 118, 
which pilgrims sang on the way to Jerusalem as a song of victory and praise to their God that that he has promised to defeat foes and established a kingdom unlike that which we have ever seen. Let's turn there, if you would. Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in mortals. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me in the name of the Lord. I'm cut, I cut them off. They surround me. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees and blazed like a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. See, the Lord, he's my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. And here it is. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festal festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And this steadfast love, it'll endure forever. But the people, they add a funny kind of line in there. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. See, apparently the people were starting to get it. The return of the king to Jerusalem wasn't just another line of political power player, another in the line of political power players. This was the ancestor of David, the one from whom God would inaugurate a forever kingdom. 
You don't lay cloaks and you don't lay palm branches on the road for someone from who you had a mild appreciation. You don't lay palm branches and cloaks on the road for somebody that you kind of like and is kind of a good guy, but you know, tomorrow it's going to maybe be somebody else. You do that for royalty. Are you ready for your king to lay down his life in humiliation and sacrificial love? That's the thing. If, if you're laying these cloaks on the road, you might be saying Jesus is the king, but are you hoping, you might be hoping for that conquer. You might be hoping for him to, to charge in and take back what's his. He is going to do that. But it's not going to look like violence and war and destruction. It's going to look like peace, love, and humility. Are you ready to follow that king? Martin Luther King Jr. wrote... Um, I was reading his, his, uh, one of his sermons this week. He wrote that love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great military genius, looking back over his years of conquest, is reported to have said, Alexander, Caesar... Charlemagne, and I, we've all built great empires. But upon what did they depend? They depended on force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions would die for him. Who can doubt the veracity of these words? The great military leaders of the past have gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, it's still growing. It started with a small group of dedicated men who through the inspiration of their Lord were able to shake the hinges from the gates of Rome and carry the gospel to the ends of the world. See, that picture painted by Dr. King of an empire built on love, that's the one that's offered to us today. And that's the question that we have. What are we expecting God to do? Are we expecting God to take back control? Are we taking, expecting God to do this by force? My suspicion is that God is expecting us to love our neighbors. God is expecting us to, to open our doors, open the doors of our homes, open, the, the, um, open up our families, open up uh, the, the work that we do during the day, and have all of that look like, like Paul said, sacrificial love. That the work that we do when we start our job on Monday morning, will, does that look like sacrificial love? When we um, engage with, with customers, when we engage with um, the people that we engage with throughout the day, when we talk to students, when we talk to friends, does that look like sacrificial love? Does that look like servant, uh, servanthood? Or, or does it look like manipulation? Does it look like exploitation? Does it look like um, me just trying to get the things that I want out of my day? Or does it actually, or have we been able to take the mind of Christ? Have we able to, to model who we are and what we're about after the, the humility of Christ and then model that in our activity for the day? Do our actions show love when people describe the work that we do would they use words like love and joy and peace 
or they use other things. So is Jesus king? That's our question for today. Let me pray. Father, this, um, this day is a wonderful day because we can celebrate that you have returned, that you have tabernacled with your people, that you have defined love. Help us live into the definition of love and peace and sacrifice as you define it, not as we would want it to be defined. Help us to live into that kind of freedom. Help us to see that true liberty is living in you. True freedom is living in you. Our citizenship is in your kingdom. That's the empire that we want to be about. Father, penetrate us with your Holy Spirit. Tell us these things, whisper in these things, these things that we need to hear, the ways that we need to get back on track, the way that we need to to seek first your kingdom, the ways that we need to repent. We need to change direction. We need to turn around and seek back your kingdom. That path is going to be marked by humility and peace and love. Father, help us to live that kind of life. And do it all for your glory and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.